It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, this Sunday, this morning, I'm preaching a standalone sermon, which means it comes in between two seasons of the church. Uh, on Friday, we celebrated Christmas, uh, which closed the season of Advent. And then next Sunday, uh, we're going to begin a series uh, in the season of Epiphany through the book of John. Uh, and this week, when Brandon asked me to preach, he said that I could preach uh, on a topic of my choosing, uh, which I thought, great. Uh, it's great. I get to pick a topic of my choosing. I thought it was great until I realized just how difficult it is to, to pick a standalone topic in text to preach. Uh, but uh, as it turns out, the topic that I settled on is simply the gospel. I thought I would preach the gospel to you this morning uh, and picked 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and I think, uh, I thought it would be helpful, really, uh, with Advent being a season in the church where we're reminded of why we celebrate Christmas, uh, to take this morning uh, and remember why we celebrate Sundays as Christians, why we celebrate Jesus uh, as Christians. And if you think about it, uh, to think about it a little bit further, Christmas time is the most wonderful season, excuse me, the most wonderful time of the year, I guess is how the song goes. Um, and for many of us, we have different reasons for why it's the most wonderful time of the year. We think of decorations, snow maybe, uh, giving presents, all kinds of things uh, that we think about. Uh, but the Advent season, our Advent rhythm as a church, reminds us that while we should enjoy the season and celebrate well, we can't let all of those things eclipse the real central reason that we celebrate Christmas, that, that God came to dwell with us. Similarly, during the rest of the year, we spend a lot of time talking about what it looks like to be the church. We talk about how our parishes are doing, how people are learning to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus yet. We talk about um, how we get to serve the needy in our church and outside of our church. We talk about all these things, uh, but it's important uh, that as we talk about these things, we can't let the why, uh, excuse me, the what eclipse the why behind why we're doing these things. That everything that we do as Christians is because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are because of that. So I wanted to look at the basic gospel this morning, to pick a text and walk through just the foundations of our faith. Uh, in this chapter, these, really these few verses that we'll open together this morning do just that. They're, they're about the fundamental gospel, that which is, as Paul says, of first importance, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead for our forgiveness. And as we begin, I want to give us a brief illustration to kind of line us up uh, where Paul is in this letter. Um, I played soccer growing up, and as many of you know, soccer is a complicated, sophisticated sport uh, with a very simple goal. Uh, you want to get your ball, uh, get the ball in the other team's net more than they get it in yours. Um, and when I was in middle school, I had this coach named Matt Campion. Uh, he was an Australian, former professional, semi-professional, I don't know. Uh, he was an Australian guy, uh, and he was a great coach. He would stop uh, in the middle of our practices and explain the most minute details of the game. He'd talk about our positioning with respect to one another. He'd talk about how we can pass the ball different ways to achieve the same purpose. He'd talk about how when we were attacking the goal, we could actually drop the ball back and regroup before attacking again. He taught us all these great things, and the more complex the game of soccer got for us, the more beautiful and fun the game became. It's because we saw that as we started working together and learning how to work together better, we could actually make something more beautiful and more cool, really, happen. But one thing I remember him always doing uh, is that after telling us about some, you know, some little detail of the game, he'd always stop and say, now remember, what are we trying to do? And the goal was always, the answer was always to score a goal, right? Um, after, he did this all the time. After teaching moments at practice, he did this after his pregame uh, 
speeches, halftime speeches, he would always say things about soccer and then stop and say, now wait, what are we trying to do? He wanted to bring us back, all these great things that we were learning, to know that the central reason, the way that we win a soccer game is not by how well we move the ball or where we position ourselves. The reason, uh, the, the only way to win a soccer game is by the numbers on the scoreboard, by scoring goals. He didn't want us to lose sight of the greater game as we focused on our individual position on the field. So he stopped every time to say, now what are we trying to do? Similarly, as we look at verse 1 here in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, starts with the word now as a transition word to show that he's pausing to make an important clarification. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. In the same way that my coach stopped uh, to remind us after teaching the complex and minute details of soccer strategy, he stopped to bring us all back to the most important thing by saying, now what are we trying to do? In the same way, the Apostle Paul, who has just spent the bulk of this letter to the First Corinthians teaching them about unity, sexual purity, uh, church organization, spiritual gifts, he spent all this time talking about all of these things, and he stops here to essentially say, now, why have I said all that? Don't let the incidentals eclipse the fundamentals. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Make sure that you remember that this fundamental gospel is what is truly central, and it's what you're supposed to hold fast to, because without it, all of those other things don't matter. And as we look into our text, uh, know that that's what Paul is doing, that Paul is pausing to bring them back to the fundamental basic gospel. And we'll walk through this text using three basic points, three simple points. First, we'll look at the need that Paul is addressing, then we'll look at how he addresses it with the gospel, and then hopefully as we close, we'll see what we've seen all along, uh, what this means for us. So to start with, let's look at the need that Paul is addressing or why it is that he's writing uh, what he writes. You may know that 1 Corinthians is an occasional letter, uh, which means it's not, just, it's not a general explanation of beliefs. It's written to a particular people to address particular issues. Uh, and so let's look uh, for just a moment at the context into which Paul is writing. Corinth uh, was kind of like an ancient Middle Eastern version of Houston. Um, it was a relatively young city, having been recently uh, destroyed and then rebuilt by the Roman Empire, and thus it was populated from people uh, from various parts of the empire and was seated in the middle of a trade route, meaning that it was quickly a self-sustaining, uh, quite wealthy city. Given that it hadn't been around very long, uh, there was a flexible social structure, unlike the rest of the Roman Empire with their established aristocracies. There was a lot of room for social mobility, for professional advancement. Uh, Paul had planted the Corinthian church over a period of about a year and a half. The story is recorded uh, in Acts 18. Uh, in about AD 50 uh, is when, when Paul was there in Corinth. And so he spent a year and a half there. He knew the culture well. He knew the people well. And this letter comes a couple of years after Paul had left. He heard about what had been going on in Corinth. He had heard about the Corinthian church, and he needed to write this letter to draw them back, to bring them back, to remind them um, of why it is that they were where they were. The Corinthians uh, found themselves in the middle of this exciting city of opportunity, and understandably, uh, they, had, they were struggling to give up many of the associations they had with the world. When a Corinthian citizen was converted uh, to the Christian faith, they brought with them many cultural presuppositions, which many of us do. We all do, I think, to a certain extent. And as we read the book of 1 Corinthians, we see some signposts to the kinds of things that the Corinthian Christians were struggling with. Uh, and there's two things, uh, two of those that I'll pull out, uh, I think it would be helpful to point out now. 
first, Corinth was a city of great intellectual activity. Uh, it was a city of thinkers. Uh, and partly because of this, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians were dividing over what teacher they thought was most eloquent, uh, what teacher they thought taught best. Right? And so when Paul addresses these kinds of divisions in the church, uh, he attacks the wisdom of the world. As he says in chapter 2, verse 5, he attacks the wisdom so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The second thing that I'll, uh, I'll pull out of this culture, uh, because of the Greek understanding of the division between body and spirit, uh, the Corinthian Christians had so misunderstood their spirituality that they thought they were free to engage in extramarital sexual unions because they did that with the body, which didn't really affect their spirit, right? And so when Paul addresses sexual purity, rather than simply yelling at them, <laughs> he teaches them that rather than there being this detached relationship between body and spirit, there's a beautiful and intimate connection between the spiritual and physical realm. He says in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So glorify God in your body. These two things, as well as how Paul starts verse 1 by saying, now I would remind you, brothers. Uh, all of these things point, I think, to the need that Paul is addressing, one that we're probably quite familiar, uh, both from stories from the Bible and also from our current context here at Sojourn. And the need is this. Uh, the Corinthian people had gotten distracted their association with things of the world had led them to, to really forget to lean on the gospel as the foundation of their lives. They had gotten so focused on wisdom and getting things right that they had exchanged the power of God for the wisdom of men. Their cultural understanding of the separation between body and spirit had so relegated Christ and Christianity to the spiritual realm that they didn't think that what they did with their bodies had any bearing on their spiritual lives, and they were on the verge of denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. They had let their cultural background define their lives rather than holding fast to the gospel. They had forgotten what was of first importance. So Paul writes this letter to remind them of what God's grace in Christ means for them. And here near the end of a letter that talks quite practically about life as Christians, he pauses as if to say, now here is the foundation for all of that practical stuff I just wrote to you about. Here is what's most important. And let's look at how he does that. Paul gets to the gospel itself in verses 3 and 4, but in order to get a full picture, let's look at how Paul begins in verses 1 and 2. Read with me. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So let's stop there uh, and unpack this quickly. First, when Paul says, I would remind you, brothers... And when, this is, when, that, when he starts with that, he's indicating that he's talking about something that they've heard before. This isn't new news for the Corinthians. It's not something new for Paul to be preaching about. What he wants to get across to them is that there is nothing new that they need to attain. There's nothing hidden to them, nothing else they need to learn to add to what Christ has done for them. This basic gospel is enough for them. Next, when Paul says this gospel, which you received... This means that more than simply having heard the gospel message, he was writing to Christians who had received this message. He points them back to the day that they had received this message, believed in their hearts, as if to say, look, this is what made you guys Christians in the first place. Don't move past this. Don't lose sight of this. He then continues to say that this gospel which they received is the gospel in which they stand and by which they're being saved. In other words, they're Christians now because of the fact that they had one day received this gospel but that, that wasn't a one-and-done decision. 
being a Christian meant that you are in an ongoing relationship with the Lord and that this gospel that they had received when they first believed was when they clung to it what really carried them through the rest of their lives as God continued to grow them into the likeness of Jesus. So Paul explains that this gospel is central to who they are as Christians. It defines their past, present, and future. Uh, and I'll come back to these verses in a couple of minutes, but let's, let's read on to see uh, what this gospel this basic gospel is. Read with me, verses three and four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul delivers as of first importance this central message of the gospel. And he does so, uh, as he does so, he delivers really, I think, the problem and the solution that make up the gospel story. First, uh, let's, let's look closely at how he describes this. First, in verse 3, Paul says that Christ died for our sins. And let's not blow past this, uh, like I think we too often do. The problem that we face, the problem that Christ had to come and die for, was our sins. Not sin in general, not sin is some abstract principle. Our sins, your sins, my sins. Christ died for the problem of our sins. You see, There was a day once when all of creation enjoyed and participated in the glory of God. And man and woman, humankind, were made in the likeness. They were the crown of God's creation. They were made in his likeness and image. God had created Adam and Eve free, so while he had intended this freedom to be used for loving and worshiping him, he wasn't going to force them to do so. And as we read in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, instead of using their freedom to choose God, Adam and Eve used it for just the opposite. They chose themselves. Um... They kicked off a rebellion that has lasted until this day. When Adam and Eve committed this first sin, they fell under the curse of sin and death, and they brought with them all of their offspring. All of humanity fell under the curse and sin of death, sin and death, and ever since then, our freedom has been limited, bound in our slavery to sin. And as a result, we're each born slaves to our own desires, slaves to our own way. We cannot help but sin in pursuing our own glory rather than the glory of God. Uh, Try as we might, uh, freeing ourselves from our bondage to our sin is something that we simply cannot do because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are doomed to death and punishment because of it. So when Paul says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins, he's not making some idle, general, ethereal statement. Given that God is infinitely powerful, infinitely glorious, infinitely worthy of praise, any sin that is committed against him, no matter how small, any sin that is committed against him commits the sinner to infinite damnation, infinite punishment, right? That's the reality in which we find ourselves based on who God is, which is why Paul's statement that Christ died for our sins is such a wonderfully monumental statement and is the, really the linchpin, the foundation of our faith in Christ, Christ took the penalty due to us, this infinite damnation, this infinite disgrace, infinite punishment, and bore it all on the cross for our sake so that we might never have to taste it ourselves. Furthermore, as it says in verse 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He had risen from the grave in order to testify that he was indeed the Christ, the one who was sent by God to do this, that God's people would know the problem of our sin has been dealt with. As one uh, preacher once put it, Christ was offered in sacrifice for our sins and rose again to show that he had procured forgiveness for them and was accepted of God in this offering. This is the good news of the gospel, 
that God so loved the world, he so loved us that he sent his son to come and die and bear the punishment for our sins, that Jesus' death for our sins was the solution to the problem of our sins. Christ's death and resurrection are the very sum and substance of the Christian faith. All that follows, all that Paul had written about, rests upon this foundation of Christ's death and resurrection. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel. Let's pause here, though, and look back at something important that Paul indicates for us. Uh, as, As a hint, repetition in the Bible, when you see repetition in the Bible, it's not significant 100% of the time, but it's good to notice repetition because every now and then there is something really significant that jumps off the page. Here in our text, in verses 1 and 3, there's a word that's repeated twice that I would argue is incredibly significant. Verse 1 says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. And verse 3 says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. See, this gospel is something that the Corinthian Christians had received, and it's something that Paul had also one day received. And what this points out for us is that standing in the gospel, being in a place where you are in right relationship with God is not something that is earned. It's not something that is attained through rational assent or discovery. It's not something that we practice our way or behave our way into. Salvation, right, right standing with God is not something that is earned. It is something that is received, And I would argue that the reason that we forget so often, the reason that we need to be reminded of the gospel and that we even have a hard time accepting the gospel in the first place is in part very simple. We don't like to place our hope in something that we've received. Instead, we like to focus on what we have attained. For us to fix our minds simply on something that we have received is just that, simple. And we don't like to think of ourselves as simple. We like to think of ourselves as movers and shakers, Uh, as doers, as earners. This is true for both the Christian and the non-Christian. I remember thinking this way when I wasn't a Christian, and I remember thinking this this way when I became a Christian. The problem wasn't completely fixed. The Apostle Paul knows this, I think. That's why he writes the passage the way he does, making it clear that the gospel is something that they received, not something that they had earned. And this has huge implications for us. If you're in the room uh, and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, or if you're wrestling with understanding this fundamental truth of the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose again for our forgiveness, know this. The gospel doesn't become understood as true because of rational assent or because of any work of the intellect. The gospel becomes understood as true on the basis of special inward revelation from God. To give an example, Paul himself had undoubtedly learned of the resurrection of Jesus Christ before his conversion. He knew the facts of Christianity. He knew what Jesus' followers had said about him. What did not follow from this was Paul's belief, therefore, in its truth or in Christ's divinity. Those things were eventually made true for him through special particular revelation. This, guys, this is central to the Christian faith. But let me point you to something that Jesus himself promises in the Bible. He says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus invites you to pray and ask him uh, to reveal himself to you. There's this story in Acts chapter 10 of a man named Cornelius, who's a non-Christian, who decides to pray to God. He prays, he says, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And what God does is he sends the apostle Peter to Cornelius' house. 
And, the, and Peter comes and preaches the gospel, and Cornelius and his whole household are saved. Listen, while, while you won't be able to, on your own, learn, listen, or think your way into faith in Jesus, God is nevertheless able to use your learning, thinking, and listening to reveal himself to you. You never know which words God will use to cut to your heart with the truth of the gospel. So ask. Simply ask. If you're a Christian in the room, take encouragement in this as well. As we seek to evangelize, to share about our faith, to share the gospel with others, knowing that the truth of the gospel is something that is received means knowing that the pressure is not on us to convince others of its truth. Right? I've heard a hundred proofs that people have written for why the Bible should be, expected, uh, should be accepted as true, for why we should accept the existence of God. And while those things do well to serve the pot and raise questions, often they do little to answer those fundamental questions. Now, and, and don't misunderstand me, I think it's right and good to go through these investigations, to, to think about God, to get excited about how God reveals himself to us, but know that those kinds of arguments often do more good in reinforcing the faith of those who already believe than in igniting faith in those who don't yet. And this is, I think, quite encouraging for us. Igniting faith in God is not something that you're responsible for. You are called to love one another and love God and to preach the gospel faithfully. And through your faithfulness, you get to watch as God bears all of this wonderful and beautiful fruit. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And I'm convinced that this was one of the things that made him such a bold evangelist. God in his grace helped Paul to see that this message wasn't his own message. Right? This was one that he had received. It wasn't the message of Paul. It was the message of Christ. Therefore, when he preached, he wasn't afraid of being rejected. In, instead, he was heartbroken that people might reject Christ, and that caused him to preach all the more faithfully, all the more boldly. So Paul explains that the gospel message is a message that is received. Knowing that their tendency was to lean simply on all of the to-dos of the Christian life, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they should first rest fully in what has been done for them to rest in what has been done for them. While there's certainly a lot more in this text that we could explore, I want to spend the remainder, uh, the remainder of our time together on one crucial thing that is, I think, besides the central belief in Christ's death and resurrection, one of the most important things in this passage and in the Bible. You might have noticed that Paul adds to this reminder of the foundation of their faith a hint of warning in verse 2. Let's look at how verse 2 ends. Paul writes that the gospel is that by which they are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, if Christ's death and resurrection are central to their faith, it's unsurprising that Paul would include a warning like this. It's unsurprising that this is something that Paul wants to make, them, make sure they understand that they must indeed hold fast to it. Historically, though, this has been uncomfortable for Christians to talk about because it sounds as though God saves you and then leaves you to your own devices to continue in the faith, to hold fast. Right? But I, I, I think that this idea, though, uh, a right understanding of this idea, is important to uh, an understanding of the gospel message uh, in this story as well as many others in the Bible. We see this throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible that, that tells the story leading up to Jesus, uh, tells the story of Israel leading up to Jesus, we read repeatedly that the people of Israel are called to trust in his promises, trust in God's faithfulness, to hold fast to this covenant of law that he had given to them, or else they would be cut off. 
The Old Testament warns against this. The New Testament, uh, which is the part of the Bible that tells the story of Jesus and the ministry of his apostles after his death and resurrection, several of the apostles echo the importance of holding fast to your faith. Jesus Christ himself says in Matthew 24, verse 13, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So endurance is important. The message throughout the Bible and the message here is that simple belief is not what saves you. It's both belief and holding fast which is what saves. Did you know that it's possible to believe in God and not be saved? Look at verse two. Paul says you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. He didn't say unless you thought you believed and were wrong. He didn't say unless you believed the wrong thing. He says unless you believed in vain, unless your belief really counted for nothing. It says in James 2.19 that even the demons believe in God. So it's clear that simple belief in God is not enough for salvation. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way, a faith which works not for purification will work for putrefaction. Unless our faith makes us pine after holiness, it's no better than the faith of devils, and perhaps it's not even so good as that. A holy man is the workmanship of the Holy Spirit. So at the end of Spurgeon's quote there, uh, we hear good news. A holy man is the workmanship of the Holy Spirit. Listen, all of these things are true, right? It's true that simply believing in God will not save. It's true that believing in vain is possible, that the one who endures to the end will be saved, that the one will be saved who holds fast to the word that was preached. It's true that holding fast is a requirement for the Christian life, but here's the thing. Let me explain it this way. Belief is also a requirement for the Christian life. And let's look at how God talks about that. Look at John 3.16, famous verse. It's on a lot of coffee mugs. Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life. Romans 10.9, in Romans 10.9, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These are big conditional statements that are trying to communicate that, listen, if you believe in God, you are saved. If you don't, you are not. So belief in the death and resurrection of Christ is a big deal. But as we just looked at, Paul explains that this gospel is something that is received, given to believers through special revelation. In other words, God doesn't leave his people to their own devices when it comes to belief. So we know that saving faith is not a result of works, as it says in Ephesians 2, but a, but a result of the grace of God. Similarly, here, when Paul explains that the Corinthians need to hold fast to the gospel lest they believe in vain, which is something that appears throughout the Bible, it's made clear elsewhere that God doesn't leave his people to their own devices when it comes to holding fast either. Just a few verses later, in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, Paul writes this. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, God's grace, Paul says, I stand in this because God gave me this belief which I received, but God's grace was, towards me was not in vain because I worked hard, but really it wasn't me working. It was God in his grace working in me. Holding fast to is not a result of works, but as a result of the grace of God. 
Furthermore, to take this further, to, to kind of show us that this is not isolated to this part of the Bible, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul gives a similar call to the Christians in Philippi when he tells them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he immediately follows this with what? He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, it is God who works in you as you work this thing out, as you hold fast to this faith. And in Galatians 3, we see that Paul rebukes the Galatians for believing this very thing, for believing that they are left to themselves to hold fast and endure to the end. He says this in Galatians 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And he then goes on to say that uh, they've been given the Holy Spirit to sustain them to the end. So it's clear that belief in Jesus' death and resurrection is required And we're told that God in his grace gives us belief, a belief that we receive. It's also clear that enduring, that holding fast to our faith is required for salvation. And we're also told that God here in his grace through the power of his Holy Spirit uh, enables us to do so. When we were dead in our sins, unable to pay the debt that we owed to God, he sent Christ to die for our sins. And just as God doesn't leave us to our own devices when it comes to dealing with the problem of our sin, He doesn't leave us to our own devices when it comes to sealing and securing our eternity with him. This is the gospel. That God in his grace made a way for us to be back in right relationship with him forever and ever. He granted us belief in this gospel by his grace and upon our receiving it, upon our receiving this belief, it says in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God declared it to be so, and so it is. Don't miss this. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that you were an enemy of God, and that by nothing that you have done, God has made a way for the penalty of your sin to be paid, and also for you to be sustained in a relationship forever with him. This is a beautiful truth of the gospel. And as I close, um, I want to say this. One of, the, one of the chief ways that God keeps us guarded, uh, that God sustains us, is by ensuring that we're brought back to the truth, by ensuring that we're reminded of the gospel. It says in Hebrews 3, uh, to remind one another every day, so long as it's called today, so that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so God gives us one another to remind us. And so we should make every effort to, to remind one another to point one another back to this gospel, to point one another to, to the fact that, listen, God has granted you all things. It says this in 2 Peter 1. God has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Therefore, you should make every effort to supplement this faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. We're not passive just sitting here waiting for the God's, God's grace to be poured out on us. We are dead in our sins, but we live in light of what God has done for us, raised from death to life, living in the grace of God for us. Another way that we're regularly reminded is through the songs that we sing. Uh, one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, is a, is a, is a hymn that has three verses, um, and it builds uh, to the third verse. In the middle of the third verse, it says this. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That hymn was written in the 1750s, uh, and there's a reason that Christians have been singing it ever since then. There's a reason it didn't fall off the charts, <laughs> right? It's because it hits, it strikes a chord with something that's really fundamental to our faith. Two things, I think. First, that we are indeed prone to wander. 
Lord, I feel it. I am prone to wander. And we need to be called back. It also hits on the fact that God promises to seal us, to seal our hearts for his courts above. Lord, take and seal my heart for your courts above. This basic gospel is something that we will never move past. And by God's grace, I hope that this, the, the gospel story is something that never grows old for us. Share this. There's, uh, remember a story of a, a pastor, one of my old pastors, who told this story of a, he was sitting in an interview in an assessment uh, for the ministry that he was getting ready to jump into. Um, and the pastor who was interviewing him asked him, he said, you know, what's the gospel? Simple question, what's the gospel? And he was caught off guard. He had prepared all the, you know, the typical interview questions, uh, but he hadn't prepared just, you know, what, what is the gospel? And so he said, you know, as he started to tell the gospel, he thinks he, hits the high, he hit the high points, but it was the most disjointed, confused, disorganized version of the gospel story. He got so worried in the middle of it that he started looking around, and then he finished, and then he looked back up at the pastor who was interviewing him, and he saw, uh, he was surprised, he saw the pastor with tears in his eyes. All the pastor said was, it gets better every time. I pray that that's my reaction every time I hear the gospel, and I pray the same for each of us. The only practical exhortation, uh, as I close, and I really mean it this time, uh, the only practical exhortation that I would give is this. If you have yet to place your faith in Christ, lean into how God describes himself Look at how he describes salvation. Knock, and the door will be opened. Ask, and you shall receive. I can't tell you how or when it will happen, but I can tell you that God is the one who promised it, and he who promised is faithful. If you're a Christian in the room, be reminded of the beautiful, fundamental truth of the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, and he rose again to secure your forgiveness. And be encouraged that just as Jesus promised, he is with you to the end of the age. His divine power has granted you all things that pertain to life and godliness, and you are therefore entirely without lack, totally free to exercise your confidence in him and live a life of joy and peace to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let me pray for us.